The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm preaching from Ephesians 6, but this phrase has been much in my mind this week in reference to the sanctity of human life. Paul talked about being sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Isn't that a powerful phrase? Just a few words. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Notice that he says always rejoicing, but he doesn't say that in front of sorrowful. So I could add in the, in the phrase Sometimes sorrowful, but always rejoicing. When it comes to abortion, we should be sorrowful. The grief is deep and profound. The tragedy is deeper and more profound than we can possibly imagine. And so we should be sorrowful, but we should be always rejoicing. And the reason I say that is because I believe with all my heart that gospel is more powerful than the spirit of abortion. I believe that grace is more powerful than all of our sins. And when it comes to this particular topic, I think it's easy to make the case that all of us feel the need for cleansing and forgiveness. We all feel guilty when it comes to this. And sometimes the guilt is deep and profound because you have actually gotten an abortion or you were a, a man and you pressured a woman to get an abortion and you don't know what to do with that guilt. Well, here's what to do with it. Run to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what you should do with it. Because the grace of God is infinitely sufficient for all of our sins. And so my desire is the conviction of that sin would drive you to Christ and to the cross. So be convicted. Grieve over it. Feel the weight of it. Hate it. But flee to Christ. And then for those of us that personally have never been directly involved in abortion, we still feel guilty because this is a national scandal, really. A moral scandal. An ethical scandal. And the church, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. We're supposed to be a a city on a hill. We're supposed to be a light shining in a dark place. And we have plenty of guilt to go around. Frequently, the sins of omission, things we feel we should have done. We don't pray enough. We're not active enough. We don't give enough money. We've missed out on opportunities to persuade co-workers. People have said things we don't agree with, but we've remained silent out of fear. So again, for all of you, I want to say there's ample grace at the cross. So today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We do this every year. It's an annual reminder of the sacredness of human life. That's what sanctity means. That's why we do it. We remind ourselves that human beings are created uniquely in the image of God. Every one of us are in the image of God. And that's sacred. It's set apart as special. And we need that reminder because Satan is assaulting the image of God all the time. Satan hates God And he will assault the image of God. It's been a strategy from the very beginning. We also have Sanctity of Human Life Sunday every year. Secondly, so that we can remember and have reestablished in our hearts the blessing that children are. One of the great tragedies of this scourge of abortion is that there's been an assault on this basic concept that children are a blessing. That in our lifetime, we've had more of a pressure to consider children as a burden or a curse or something that is unwanted, unplanned, all of that kind of language. 
Planned Parenthood slogan, every child a wanted child. Who are we to want or not to want? But it it really assaults the concept that children are a blessing. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the world. He did the same thing in Genesis chapter 9 with Noah after the flood. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Deuteronomy 7, after they enter the, as they're about to enter the promised land, Moses said, God will love you and bless you and multiply you. Deuteronomy 28.4, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. Psalm 113, verse 9, he settles the barren woman in her home as the happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Consistently, Scripture is portrayed as a blessing. And no one did it better than Jesus. As always, Jesus leads the way. You remember how some people were bringing, some parents were bringing little children to Jesus for him to pray for them and bless them, put his hands on them and bless them. But the apostles were, were rebuking those who brought them and trying to, trying to move them away. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus saw this, he became indignant with the twelve, with the apostles. He was upset at them. He was angry at them. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for of such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then he took the children in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So we do this every year so that we can reestablish biblically in our minds and hearts and every day what an incredible blessing children are. Thirdly, we do it as an annual reminder of the present scourge of abortion. This is 40 years now on Tuesday 40 years since the notorious Roe versus Wade decision. And it's chosen, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is chosen every year to coincide with that anniversary date. You heard what Emily said, 55 million babies aborted. And as, a Christ, as Christians, we grieve over this. And as Ron alluded to, it's not a problem only here in our country, but it's a worldwide scourge. There are sex selection abortions in India and in China where girls are selected out and killed because of their gender. It's the greatest assault on womanhood that there is in the world. I can't think of a greater one. Because they're girls, they're killed. It's that simple. And in China, in communist China, because they have the one-child policy, there are, in many cases, there's a government policy of forced abortions for women who have already had their allotted one child. And so... Ron and I were talking about this as we were, you know, in that country recently and how there are party officials that are just keeping track of the monthly cycles of the women in their district. And there are forced abortions in China. Worldwide, approximately 42 million abortions every year. One in five pregnancies ends in abortion. So it's important for us to keep this issue in front of us and to keep praying for an end to this scourge. Fourthly, it's an annual reminder of the power of God, the sovereign power of God. It's so easy to get depressed when you look at this issue. And, and if you're feeling that, then just know, and this is going to be a major theme in my sermon today, that is a weapon of the devil, that discouragement, that depression that comes on you. And so we're here to fight it. Amen. Job 42.2, Job said to God, 
I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. We need to remember that, don't we? Isaiah 14, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who can thwart him, his hand is stretched out and who can turn it back. And then Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar after his conversion, his transformation from an animal to a man again and I think to a believer in God. He said this of the eternal God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So this is an annual reminder of the God who sits on the throne of the universe. We're going to see in a few weeks as we continue our study in Isaiah, Isaiah 37, just how unstoppable is the power of this almighty God. And it's good for us when we face a seemingly unbeatable foe like uh, legalized abortion to remind ourselves that God is greater and he is powerful and he is able to make changes. Fifth, it's an annual reminder of the truth of God's word. We have to stand in the middle of this because Satan is just continually pouring out lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. He is a murderer. He was from the beginning. There's a combination in Jesus' statement in John 8, 44. Combination, lying, murderer. And then that really comes down when it comes to abortion. He's a lying murderer. And so this morning I'm going to take some of the lies that the devil tells, some of the things that you hear in this debate, in this discussion, and lay them alongside the truth of God and to give you, I hope, answers that you can take in that situation. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we need to remind ourselves of the truth of God here. Sixthly, it's an annual reminder of the wickedness of Satan. Satan is in the midst of all of this. I, I think again and again, some of the wicked religions that have started in the world have had child sacrifice at the heart of it. He just seems to be bloodthirsty. It's even in the Bible in 2 Kings 17, the Israelites even sacrificed their own sons and daughters to Baal. And that's not the only religion. Baal worship is not the only one. But there's a regular history of this throughout the world. Satan seems to be bloodthirsty. I remember when I was involved in the pro-life ministry in Brookline, Massachusetts, and I would go every Saturday morning, and we would go there and just talk, try to talk to women as they would go into the abortion clinic. But uh, facing us, opposing us, were counter-demonstrators. And those were some of the scariest days of my life still. Those are some of the scariest people I ever dealt with. I really sensed a seething rage inside them where if they could kill me, they would. Very, very tough time. And we were there for five hours every Saturday. And then it was done and we would go home. And I would drive like a maniac, like an idiot out of Brookline. I felt like I was being chased. It was just a satanic place. I'm not, I'm not overstating. It was an evil, satanic place. You know how Jesus said in Revelation, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I think there are just some concentrations of satanic power and influence. And that abortuary, that abortion clinic was one of them. And I, I used to go home, Christy will tell you this, I used to go home and sleep all Saturday afternoon. I had nothing left. I was just so exhausted and so tired and so sad. And it was just such a satanic assault on me just standing there testifying to the truth. I still think that the 
boldest, most courageous thing I ever did was to unload our ugly green Volkswagen van that we used with our signs surrounded by 20 or 30 of these counter demonstrators. And I was the only one there so far. It's like 630 in the morning. I was terrified just to open the door and start unloading the signs. We need to know that Satan's involved in this. And that's why I brought us to Ephesians 6, because we need to see the greater power of God in all of that. So we need to see both. You have to see it's satanic, Satan's at work, and God is more powerful. You've got to see both sides. Seventh, this is an annual reminder. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is an annual reminder of the future world. The future world is bright and good. And I believe that, that with the power of God, with the, the, the changes that I see, even in our culture... Let's be honest, abortion's a very tough sell. And the younger generation isn't buying for the most part. The feminists, the pro-abortion feminists are losing ground. They're having a harder and harder time recruiting young women to their views. There are more and more pro-life feminists, interestingly enough. And so the old guard, those that were involved in the 70s and all that, there's a bigger generation gap in that movement. There's a Time uh, cover article in Time talking about how it's harder and harder to get an abortion in America. There are more and more local laws, local registrations, restrictions, funding issues, and they're just wonderfully crisis pregnancy centers like PSS springing up all over again. There are 50% more of them than there are the abortion clinics. Planned Parenthood is being propped up by half a billion dollars of federal funding. And they're just losing, losing, losing. I read a story about a woman who was involved in the Planned Parenthood um, PR wing. And her job was to go after crisis pregnancy centers in particular and try to discredit them. She eventually resigned. She said, the only way I can do it is to lie about them. And I don't want to do that anymore. Because none of what we say is true about those crisis pregnancy centers. They're not misleading women. They're very plain. We don't want you to get an abortion. We'll do everything we can to help you keep your baby. They're honest, they're doing that kind of work, and it's all life and positive. Christian dollars are uh, flowing in, Christian resources, energy, time and energy and money flowing in to help women keep their babies and to help them perhaps give them up to adoption or keep them and raise them. It's just a beautiful thing. Now, there's always more that could be done, but this woman resigned. She said, I can't say anything more about it. I'm a liar, and I just don't want to lie that way. I'm not saying she came to faith in Christ. I'm not saying she changed her even views on abortion. She just couldn't do that job anymore because all she could do was lie about him. So I think the future is bright even from here to the second coming of Christ. I hope and pray that someday it will be seen, like Ron said, like chattel slavery. I hope at some point it will be seen that way. And that the Roe versus Wade decision will be seen like the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War. Just an, uh, you know, a miscarriage of justice. Wickedness. But the future, the ultimate future is even brighter. Amen? As Christians, we know abortion's temporary. Don't we know that? Because death is temporary. Death itself. Someday he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And so the future is bright. And eighth, it's an annual reminder of the grace of God in Christ. I already talked about that, but I can't talk about it too much. God's grace is greater than this sin or these sins. And we need to focus on that. So let's look at Ephesians 6 briefly. It's not an exposition of Ephesians 6, but I want to just put the firm foundation of God's word under our feet. So we can understand it. I want to talk about the shield of faith. But uh, just briefly, what's going on in the book of Ephesians? Ephesians is a short and very efficient display of the grace of God in Christ. First three chapters focus on the gospel and on God's eternal purpose to save people by the blood of Christ. 
chapters 4 through 6 talks about the ethics of the Christian life that flow from that redemption, that salvation that comes in Christ. So Ephesians 1 says that God should be praised and glorified and honored because he has determined to bless us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's incredible, the generosity of God, because we are sinners of the darkest stain. And yet God desires to give us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And the centerpiece of that is God's redemptive work by the blood of Jesus Christ. So it says in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So the centerpiece of everything is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. So I don't know if you knew when you were coming here today that it was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I don't know if the abortion issue has touched your life much. This is the most important message that I have to give today. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Maybe that's why God brought you to church today. That you might understand that there is full forgiveness for all sins. From a painful experience I had early in my ministry in preaching on abortion and forgetting that there might be women listening to me who had actually had abortions, I have since that day never forgotten to give you this grace. There is no sin you can commit that's greater than the value of the blood of Christ. And it is the Father's good pleasure to forgive you and welcome you back by the grace of Christ. So seek that grace in Christ. But even if you haven't been involved in this at all, you still need forgiveness. And there isn't just forgiveness available. It is infinitely available in Christ. Flee to Christ. Trust in him. Plead with him. Say, I don't want to leave this place unforgiven. I don't want to face your wrath on judgment day. I want that forgiveness. And in him, in Christ, that forgiveness is available. We also see in Ephesians 1 the power of the Holy Spirit of God to take that blood of Christ and apply it sovereignly to people who need it. The Spirit moves out and applies the redemption that Jesus won that day. And so in in verses 13 and 14, Ephesians 1, it says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so the Holy Spirit has moved out. If you're a Christian today, the Spirit made you so. It was the Holy Spirit of God that changed you. It was the Holy Spirit of God that transformed you, that took out that heart of stone and gave you the heart of flesh. It's the Spirit that saved you by the blood of Jesus. And also we see in Ephesians 1, God's overarching power to bring all things, all this fragmented, broken apart universe together under one head, even Christ. And God put all things under Christ and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Ephesians 1, glorious chapter of God's purposes and redemption in Christ. In Ephesians 2, he talks about how God has worked on us individually. Not only did God raise Christ physically up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He has raised us up spiritually from the dead. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live. When when we follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Satan. Satan's at work in our world and he's making people disobey. 
And we were just like that. We were no different. We were dead while we lived. It was a living death. And God, by his spirit, has redeemed us, has ransomed us, has raised us to life. We're born again by his blood and by the word of the gospel. God has that kind of power to do that. Now, in Ephesians 4 through 6, he says, okay, now that you've been redeemed, you're born again, you're alive. Now you must live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I'm going to talk in depth about this next week. The highway of holiness from Isaiah 35. But Ephesians 4.1 says you need to live a whole different kind of life. And the centerpiece of that life is be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it leads to a whole new kind of life, a whole new kind of life in marriage, a whole new kind of life in the parent-child relationship, in the master-slave relationship he talks about there. Everything changed. But then at the end, in Ephesians 6, he talks about a whole different kind of life as we stand firm against the devil and become spiritual warriors. It's not going to be a peaceful, comfortable journey on this highway of holiness. I I need to be careful because I'm going to go right over into Isaiah 35, and then what will I do next week? But it's it's a fighting march to heaven. It's not easy. And so we have to be filled with the Spirit, and we have a responsibility Ephesians 6, 10, 11, to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and to put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. So the word scheme is an evil plan, an evil plot, and the devil has schemes and we are are not unaware of his schemes, Paul says in another place. We know what he's doing and we have to stand our ground and our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. You have to see with the eyes of faith. Those people that surrounded our ugly minivan, they weren't my enemy. They were, I think, to some degree, breathing out murderous threats against me. But they weren't my enemy. The enemy was unseen. It was spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms against the powers and principalities, against the divisions of satanic's king, uh, the satanic kingdom. We have to be strong and we have to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground and after we have done everything to stand. And so Paul goes on from there to describe the Christian soldier fully equipped. Verse 14 through 17. Stand firm then, he says, with the belt of truth buckled around the waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. So we've got all this powerful defensive weaponry, this shielding that we have, this armor of God. We need to be aware that we're in a war. We need to take our stand, stand our ground. It's kind of static. We're going to stand here. This is where we're going to stand and fight. This is truth under our feet here. And we're going to, like it says in James 4, resist the devil and he'll flee from us. We're going to stand our ground. The elements I could describe briefly, and if you know anything about the Puritan movement, know there was a man named William Gurnall, and he wrote a 1,200-page book on these elements. 
1,200 pages, and it's small print, too. I stopped being able to read it without glasses a few years ago. Now I'm not even sure I can read it with the glasses. 1,200 pages of that. Puritans didn't spare any words, friends. But I, I can't go in that great detail. If you want to get, you know, the full armor of God, Grinnell's treatment on that, go ahead and read it, and I think it would benefit you. But just briefly, the belt of truth represents our commitment to the word of God and to Christ. Both are portrayed in John's gospel as truth. The breastplate of righteousness, fundamentally the imputed righteousness we have in Christ so that nothing can kill us. Satan can't kill us because we are righteous in the sight of God and nothing can penetrate that. And the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. Next week I'm going to talk about the the two infinite journeys. We are traveling. We are moving. We need good traction. And when you stand and fight, you've got to have good traction. And so the readiness of the gospel of peace is not an easy expression. But I think what it means is the gospel that has made us be at peace with God gives us a firm footing under our, our feet where we can fight. And we know God is at peace with us and we're reconciled to God. And we have a message, a story to tell the nations. And so that's, we're ready to tell that. And so that's the, the footing under us. And the helmet of salvation, I think, again, focuses on the mind, the thoughts. So much of this battle is a battle for the mind. Ephesians 4 says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's all mental, mental, mental. It's a battle for the mind. So you put on the helmet of salvation. We think differently now. We just have a different way of thinking now. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We... 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How powerful, the sharp, double-edged sword in our hands. We can see how Jesus wielded it in the desert against the temptations of the devil. And, And with that, we can both block his false attacks and we can do damage to his kingdom with the sword of the Spirit. But I'm going to focus for a moment on the shield of faith. Verse 16. Did you see the cover photo? Tom picked that one out. It's pretty scary. If you really look at it, it's pretty scary. There's an archer with a flaming arrow taking aim at you. That's scary. You are in Satan's crosshairs. He wants you. He wants to kill you. He wants to attack you. And and Ephesians 6.16 says, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The shield was given to the soldier to protect him and to save his life from both from sword thrusts, but also especially from arrows. If you were in the middle of a field and a volley of arrows was coming down to you, your sword would do you no good. If you didn't have a shield, you'd die. I mean, those archers, they could fire from three to 400 yards away. And the velocity was high. And when it's coming down at an angle, 30 degrees, 45 degree angle, whatever, it will penetrate and kill you. And so we have this shield of faith. And, and faith means we see in the invisible realm and we understand the truth. We know that the devil's coming after us, but he's a defeated foe. We see the invisible realm around us. And we know that God is for us and who can be against us. And we've got this confidence, this assurance. We're filled with hope as we fight. 
because of the word of God. And so we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's interesting how Paul comments only on this one article here, its effectiveness. He doesn't talk about the effectiveness of any of the others. He talks about the effectiveness of the shield of faith. It is effective to the extinguishing of every flaming arrow the devil fires. Isn't that marvelous? How encouraging. 100% effective. What are these arrows, these flaming arrows? Well, false doctrines. 1 Timothy 4, 1 speaks of the doctrines of demons. False teachings are flaming arrows coming after your, your vital organs spiritually. Temptations to sin are flaming arrows. And with the shield of faith, you can see through them. You know what they are. We know behind the abortion question is the question of sexual sin, isn't it? And it's by the shield of faith you can stand firm in the day of temptation and not give in sexually so that it's not even an issue for you. You don't even need to wonder about it. You just know you're going to be sexually pure and you're not going to sin in that area. And so you're able to stand in the day of testing and the shield of faith is effective to see through the moment and see the consequence, to see what's coming and see God, the Holy One who sees everything we do. And you're able to put out that flaming arrow of temptation. And then on the flip side, the flaming arrow of accusations of sin. He does, the, he does both. How evil is our enemy? He's the very one who tempts us into sin. And then after we sin, he turns around and gets all righteous on us and accuses us of the very sin he lured us into. As it says in Zechariah 3, 1, Then I saw Joshua the high priest standing at the right hand of God and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. That's what the word Satan means in Hebrew. He's the accuser. And he's there accusing Joshua the high priest of his wickedness and his sin. He's the accuser of the brethren, it says. And that's a flaming arrow. You know, I think that what, what a church, a healthy church, a, a good pastor, I think what the Bible does is before the temptation, it gets all tough with you and urges you, pleads with you not to sin. But then after the sin, it's tender and gentle and affirming. And gracious to welcome you back and tell you there is forgiveness with Christ. And we need both, don't we, in the Christian life. Before the sin happens, you need to be strong and not sin. Because sin is poison. But afterwards, you need to know how forgiving and gracious God is. You know what Satan does? He switches them. So that in the time of temptation, he tells you God will be forgiving, he'll be gracious and all that. And afterward, then he tells you God's a, a monster, an ogre, and he's going to send you to hell and he'll never forgive you. Flaming arrows of discouragement and despair. I feel that in this issue. I actually asked the guys, uh, uh, elders, and uh, should I preach a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday sermon? Forgive me for asking that. It's like John the Baptist saying, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Of course I should preach this sermon. Abortion's still legal. People are still dying. God's truths haven't changed. But you get discouraged. It's like, is anything ever going to change? It's changing. False arguments. All of these things are flaming arrows. All right, so <clears throat> what are the specific flaming arrows that Satan launches our way? Well, first of all, I want to encourage you to look at this book. This book, Randy Alcorn's Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments, is the best single resource I've found in dealing with the mental aspect, the, the defense of the faith aspect in the pro-life cause. And I had um, our folks get 15 copies of this. It's in the North Tower uh, resource center. I don't know if somebody may have already grabbed some. I have this one, but I'm going to put it back. 
So somebody come and grab this one and just take the folder out and pay the price, put it in there, but you can have it. And a lot of the sermon from here on out, other than the biblical part that I put in, <clears throat> will be from Andy, Randy Alcorn's defenses and arguments. I think we need to know, 2 Corinthians 10, how to demolish strongholds and extinguish flaming arrows. I think we need to know how to argue in this. And I don't mean have an argument. I mean make an argument. You know the difference. So we're not being ugly. We're not being negative. We are telling the truth when it comes to the pro-life issue. So I'm going to zero on two aspects briefly in the time we have left. Arguments concerning the life and the humanity and the personhood of the preborn, of the baby. And secondly, I'm going to zero in on questions of rights and fairness and the freedom of, of a woman to choose and, and those things. I'm going to focus on those. There are other main topics that Randy Alcorn addresses, but those are the ones I'm going to zero in on. The fundamental biblical truth in this issue is that life begins at conception. That's the most important biblical truth there is. Human life begins at conception. The Bible settles that forever. Probably the best text on that, in my opinion, is Luke chapter 1, when the pregnant Mary goes to visit the pregnant Elizabeth, and they have an encounter together in Luke chapter 1. So Elizabeth is further along in her pregnancy with John the Baptist than Mary, who has just received news from Gabriel that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon her. And so Jesus is just then conceived. It's very significant because, first of all, concerning Elizabeth's baby, she says in Luke 1.44 to Mary, As soon as your greeting, the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The key words for me are for joy. Joy is an emotion. It can only be done by a person. John the Baptist was a person. He just wasn't born yet. And so he could feel joy. And so he jumped up and got all excited about Jesus, which he would be doing his whole life. But perhaps even more significant is the statement made just before that in Luke 143. Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Mary's just now pregnant. First few weeks, I would guess. And she's already a mother. And the one inside her is already Elizabeth's Lord. To me, that's very significant. So also is it significant God's direct activity in the assembling together of the human body in the womb. This is taught in two places, in Job chapter 10 and in Psalm 139. Job 10, 9 through 12, it says, Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? Clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness. And in your providence, you watched over my spirit. Very significant statement. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. 
Now, the question has to come in here. What makes us think we have the right to interfere with that process? God's actively putting the baby together and we step in and stop that. Where did that power come from? Where does that right come from to interfere with that process? Now, in the Roe versus Wade decision, Justice Harry Blackman, who wrote the the decision, the majority decision, he said these famous words, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. That's what he said. Barack Obama in the campaign trail and all that, when he was asked on abortion, etc., it was an interview back and forth, and he said, that question is above my pay grade. That was his answer. Well, the Bible answers it, friends. The Bible answers it. But Alcorn goes beyond biblical arguments to just talk about scientific and medical arguments for the humanity of the preborn. So a pro-abortion argument would run like this. It's uncertain when human life begins. That's a religious question that can't be answered by science. Well, first Alcorn says, if there's uncertainty, to what side of the benefit of the doubt go? What, What side should it go? If there's uncertainty, I would think you would protect it, not kill it. Alcorn said, if you're driving down the road and there's a a shadow, kind of a moving shadow in the road, do you assume it's a person or inanimate? I think as a driver, you're going to assume and, and, you know, do everything you can to miss it because it might be a person. Alcorn also said, if you see a a person by the side of the road and their eyes are closed and and they seem like they're in very serious trouble, if not dead, do you assume they're dead or do you assume they're alive? You assume they might be alive and try to save them. So the benefit of the doubt should go on that side. But he doesn't stop there. He says there is clear medical, scientific, biological evidence for the humanity of the preborn. It's not a little. It's a lot. And so he gives, a, you know, just one quote after another from from experts in this area. Professor uh, Matthews Roth of Harvard University Medical School. And many of these people have no agenda in the abortion issue. They may not even agree with us. But they're saying on the question of when human life begins, that's been settled. Starts at conception. Said it's incorrect. This this professor said it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. And, you know, quote after quote, I've got them here. We don't have time. Probably the most famous change of mind on this is Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who founded NARAL which is National Abortion Rights Action League, one of the truly evil players in all of this. He founded it. He was the leading OBGYN, leading doctor uh, of the most prolific abortion clinic in the Western Hemisphere, personally involved in over 60,000 abortions. Until the clinic started using ultrasound. And he looked at the actual people that he was killing and his mind was totally changed forever on abortion he came to realize he had been personally involved in killing 60,000 people. There's no doubt in his mind. And this was not a religious transformation. He was an atheist when he changed. He did not die an atheist. But at that point, it was just a medical decision. And he is the one that did the film, The Silent Scream, which used that same technology to depict the recoiling and the effort a fetus, a baby, was making to stay alive and and the pain that the baby could feel. A second kind of argument along this line says the fetus is just part of a 
pregnant woman's body like her tonsils or appendix. You can't seriously believe that a frozen embryo is an actual person. So they say it's like an arm or a leg or a tonsil or something like that. But the problem is that it's individual personhood is defined genetically. There's a a definite genetic code to that baby that's different from the mother's. And that's there at conception. Every cell in the mother's body or tonsils or appendix, all that, clearly belong to the mother genetically. That's how DNA evidence can be used in crimes and all that because we know it's connected with that one human being. And it's unique. It's like a fingerprint. And so also it is that the preborn is a distinct, unique person from conception. I don't know if you know this, but in July of 2000, the United States House of Representatives unanimously passed a bill making it illegal to execute a pregnant woman. Okay, I'm going to pause for effect now. Just think about that. What is the ethical foundation of such a law? You're dealing with two persons, one of them guilty under the law and the other one not. And as a result of that, the law was passed unanimously, including pro-abortion advocates voted it. Alcorn says, do they not realize how incredibly inconsistent they're being in voting for that legislation? To us, it makes perfect sense. By the way, this is interesting. There's only one nation on earth in which it's legal to execute a pregnant woman. And that's St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean. I think someone might want to go down there and say, I want you to know you're the only ones. Even the Muslim nations, other nations are aware to not do this. Hopefully that legislation will get changed. But the foundation of it is the personhood of the unborn, is it not? Or this one, perhaps you've heard this kind of argument. The unborn is an embryo or a fetus or a product of conception. Abortion is terminating a pregnancy, not killing a child. This is just rhetoric. Do you not see the tricks? They're using a word, embryo, rather than a baby. They're using the word fetus rather than baby. They're using the even more depersonalized word, product of conception, POC, rather than baby. Why are they doing that? Well, you know why. And Alcorn said, semantics can change perceptions, semantics can solve consciences, but they can't change reality. Concerning the development of the child, prior to the earliest abortions, the unborn already has every part he or she will ever have. At 18 days after conception, the heart is forming, eyes are starting to develop by 21 days. The heart is not only beating, but pumping blood throughout the body by 28 days. The unborn has budding arms and legs by 30 days. The baby has multiplied in size 10,000 times. The baby now has a brain and blood is flowing through the baby's veins by 35 days. Mouth and ears and nose are already taking shape. At 40 days, the baby's brain waves can be measured. The child's heartbeat, which started three weeks previous, can now be heard by an ultrasonic stethoscope. By 42 days, the skeleton is formed and the brain is controlling the movements of muscles and organs. By eight weeks, the hands and feet are almost perfectly formed. Fingerprints are developing. By nine weeks, a child will bend fingers around an object placed in the palm. Interestingly, Alcorn cites the case of a politically liberal professor in the Northeast and his wife, she was a little bit older when they had their first child. They were uncertain about the baby's you know, future health and life, so they decided to do an amniocentesis. They used ultrasound to do it. While they were watching, the baby grabbed the needle. And they did not go through with the abortion and change their views on abortion from that point forward. All of this happens before the time that most, most abortions occur. All of this development. 
Uh, another argument like this is it's not really a person until it breathes on its own. I mean, are we going to get to that level? You're going to say that a baby the day before it's born after nine months and one week, it's not a person because it's not breathing air in its lungs. Have you ever heard of mouth to mouth resuscitation? I'm talking of like people 18, 28 years old. Their lungs are filled with water. Their hearts are beating. It's not a person. I'll tell you what, every person has ever given someone like that mouth-to-mouth resuscitation did it because they thought that was a person and they wanted to save their life. No, it's not the breathing of air that makes you a person. That's not true. It's dangerous when one category of a society starts denying personhood to another category. That's really dangerous. That's what the Nazis did. That's what... You know, the Dred Scott and all that, saying that slaves were three-fifths of a person. I don't know what that, what does that mean? Three-fifths of a person. That's politics. That's not, that's not reality. You're a person or you're not. And they're persons. All right. Secondly, let's zero in on arguments concerning rights and fairness. With this will be done. They say, even if the unborn are human beings, they have fewer rights than the woman. No one should be expected to donate her body as a life support system for someone else. Well, listen, once you concede that that preborn is a human person, that settles the matter of whether they should die. So then you're, you're basically comparing a quality of life argument and the difficulties of pregnancy and deliver, delivery, which are significant, and then of caring for a child, uh, which is significant, against life itself. And that's how you make those ethical choices. Every person has the right to choose, we're told. Be unfair to... Restrict a woman's choice, her right to choose, by prohibiting abortion. Well, the problem with that ethically is we need to know freedom to choose what. Suppose you just went up to somebody and said, I have the right to choose. I want more information. Don't you? Choose what? All laws are based on that. We don't have the right to discharge a firearm if there's someone in the line of fire. We don't just have that freedom to do that. Interestingly, the pro-abortion movement, and that's what it should be called because that's what it is, the pro-abortion movement does not say anything, as far as I know, about forced abortions in China. I'm not aware of any movement to try to get that to stop. It's difficult for them to make that case. They don't like talking about it. But there's no choice over there for those women. So is it really freedom of choice they're looking for? Is it just pro-abortion? Randy Alcorn, and I, I think you ought to remember this one. You may be able to use it in the future. He always says the same thing when he talks to people that say, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice. He was on a talk show with a woman, and he identified or referred to her as pro-abortion. She said, wait a minute, wait, wait, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-choice. He always says the same thing. Why would you say that? Is there something wrong with abortion? Try that one. Why would you say that? Is there something wrong with abortion? And she candidly answered, I think if we're honest, we would have to say, as women, we feel very uncomfortable killing our babies. That discussion is over. (laughs) It really is. The only reasons to be against abortion personally come from the arguments I've already made, the personality of the preborn. And so it makes no sense to say I'm personally against abortion, but I'm also pro-choice. It doesn't make any sense ethically. You need to think it through. Friends, ultimately what I want is I want our church, I want Christians in America to be messengers of hope. We are to give people hope in hopeless situations. The most hopeless situation has nothing to do with abortion and all of that. It has to do with sin and judgment before a holy God. 
And there is a remedy for that, and that is the blood of Christ. And we are, 1 Peter 3.15, always to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope that we have. We should be filled with hope. Abortion's temporary. It's a loser thing. It's a hard sell for the, even for the pro-abort feminists. It's hard to sell. It's ugly and evil, and people know it. We're going to win this one, friends. But even bigger than that, Jesus is going to win the souls of all who trust in him. So let's, in the midst of someone's darkest night they've ever had, when they have an unplanned pregnancy, or what's called sometimes a crisis pregnancy, Christians need to be there to speak hope in that situation. Say, do you realize how good God is and how much he's going to bless you if you just stand firm and trust him? We need to be messengers of hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look at this today, to consider it. I pray that you would bless and strengthen each one of us in the midst of this very, very difficult battle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.